Hi, my name is Beth Anderson. I'm a family law attorney. I practice um, family law like divorce and custody issues, probate, estate planning, and this is one of many podcasts we're recording. And the whole point is that families take different shapes. And sometimes it's a death of a family member or a breakup of a marriage or two parents who are co-parenting and they weren't married. And families change form, but they're still families. And so that's why you're not just breaking up, you're breaking upward. That's the name of this podcast. And we're really here to talk about moving on, breaking upward, and what that looks like for you. And I'm so excited to have Ed Atkinson with me today because he is a mortgage broker and I can't tell you how many times I tell my clients, as soon as you get off the phone with me, I want you to call a mortgage broker. And if they don't have one, a lot of times I'll say, call Ed, he's on the list, give him a call, he's the nicest guy. So um, as for me, my contact information and Ed's will be listed with this podcast in the notes. And my law firm is Anderson Law PC. You can reach me at BethlynAndersonJD.com. I give out my cell phone. It's 303-808-4794. And I spell Anderson with an E for excellent. So um, you can spell that right. And then Ed's got the O at Atkinson, just to keep you confused. And so I'm going to turn it over to Ed and have him introduce himself. Um, I know he's known as the Mortgage Sherpa and Golden Lenders, I think. And I'll let him introduce himself and just give your contact information, Ed. Thanks, Beth, I appreciate that. I am Ed Atkinson, I'm with Golden Lenders. Um, I am a residential mortgage broker broker or Sherpa. Um, So I help people with refinancing or purchasing homes. Uh, my contact information is uh, ed at goldenlenders.net is my email address. Uh, website is goldenlenders.net. And my cell phone number and office number are the same. And that is uh, 303-810-6451. Great, Ed. And we're so excited to have you. And so our question of the day is something I've already hinted at it. Why is the mortgage broker and the lender, why are both of them more important than you, the party in a divorce, your attorneys for both sides, and even the judge? Why is the lender and the mortgage broker more important in what they have to say about whether you can keep the house when you get a divorce? So that's our question for the day. And um, I'm going to start with the law part, and then I'll turn it over to Ed for the mortgage part because he's really got the goods and um, some things that even I don't know. But I'll tell you as a family law attorney, clients call me a lot and they say, oh my goodness, the economy, we're here in Denver area, front range, but it could be the Western Slope anywhere in Colorado and a lot of parts of the US. The real estate market is very tight and you might be able to sell your home for a lot, good for you, but can you match your monthly mortgage payments and stay in that house? If you have a spouse and say you're a homemaker, are you able to refinance that house and get your spouse off the title and take over all those mortgage payments? How long will that take? 
And guess what? You have to buy the other party, the other parent or the other spouse out of their share of the equity in the house. So let's say when you got married, you bought a house for $200,000 and now it's worth $500,000. That means it's gone up in value maybe um, $300,000 during the marriage and maybe your mortgage is still just 200. So you have $300,000 of equity in that house and it's titled in both your names. Maybe your spouse has an income of six figures and you were a stay-at-home parent. Now you're going back to get your first job in many years and maybe you're making minimum wage or you can't find a job. How is the bank going to like that when you try to refinance the house and look at your, um, I think it's your debt to income ratio and all those factors? And guess what? The judge may say, you know what? I don't see how you're going to accomplish this. So no dice. You have to sell the house. That's a huge risk. And if you try to settle your case and go into mediation, the other party might say, no, no, I'm not going to put up with that. I know if we go to court that, number one, maybe the judge will make you sell or even say, I can keep the house because I have the higher income. So as a lawyer, I know that the mortgage broker has a voice because even if the judge says, yes, you can keep that house, you win, they don't decide about whether you can pay that mortgage. They're not going to pay it for you. And there's a lot of risk if for some reason you fall behind in mortgage payments and you can't refinance the house in time. There's all these problems. So when I get a call, oh my goodness, my kids go to school in the neighborhood. There's nowhere else for us to go. I have to keep this house. We love the house. My child told me they don't want to move until they graduate high school. It's traumatic enough. These poor kids, I don't want to add to the drama by relocating them. I have to keep the house no matter what. I tell them, call a mortgage broker because it's not the judge's call, it's going to be the lender, call Ed. And so now I'm handing it over to Ed for his part of that because I don't know what he says to them when he picks up the phone. So over to you, Ed Atkinson, what happens once you get that phone call. I want to keep the house in my divorce and I want to refinance the house into my name alone, How? what happens next? Yeah, so the first thing I'm gonna do in that situation is ask the borrower or the person sort of where they are in the, the process. So is the divorce final? Is it in the works? When is it gonna be completed? So that's the first bit of information that I usually will want to know. And then secondly, I'll wanna know what their income situation is. So you know, do they have an income of their own? Are they going to be receiving all money, child support, etc.? And when will that start? How much would it, will it be? So I need to get those bits of information. Um, and then typically, I'm just going to ask some other very basic information, you know, that you would have on a loan application, because I need to know, I need to have certain bits of information before I can tell them whether they're going to qualify to stay in the house and refinance it. And as far as being able to afford the mortgage payments, that's part of the debt ratio that we look at. Um, if we can't get the person qualified for the house, then that means their debt ratio is not good enough um, for them to be able to afford to make that payment every month. So that's gonna be vetted out in that process that I take on with those borrowers. So we wanna know 
We want to know where the, pro the process is, what the timeline is. We want to know what their income is now, what their income is going to be when the divorce is finalized. Um, and then we're going to look at whether they qualify to stay in that house and refinance. Um, there's two parts to the refinance typically with a divorce situation, and that is, number one, we, we typically have to get one of the parties off title to the property. And then we also usually have to get one of the parties off of the mortgage itself. That is usually mandated in the divorce decree. And so we're gonna be looking at both of those things together. Perfect, and it's not always just the low breadwinner who's got these concerns, but also you might be the higher breadwinner, but you still have to buy that other person out of that. And what happens is when you get divorced, they look at all your assets, all your debt, and then they say, who's taking this and who's taking that? And it's like it's on a scale and you want it to be equal. So if someone walks away with a retirement worth 100,000 and a house, and it's got that 300,000 of equity I was talking about, then the other party needs to have something that's also worth 400,000. And it's not apples for apples in that situation because Retirement's not liquid. That's something that you have a tax consequence if you dip into it. A house isn't really liquid either, but it is something that saves you a mortgage expense. So there's so many moving pieces. So yeah, one thing I wanted to mention, we call alimony maintenance here in Colorado. And my understanding is you need about six months of maintenance, is that true, to qualify to have it counted in refinancing, or how does that work? It, you're absolutely correct, and sorry I called it alimony. Uh, maintenance, no worries. Um, so either child support or maintenance. Um, typically, for qualifying, to be used as qualifying income on the loan application, uh, typically we are going to want to see a six-month history of them receiving that income and some proof that they're gonna receive that income for at least the next three years. So that's where the divorce decree comes in, that's where the ages of the children come in because child support is typically gonna be based on, you know, there are gonna be changes as the children get to a certain age, and so we're gonna be looking at that. So yes, A is uh, six months worth of history, and B is um, that it's gonna continue for the next 36 months. Then I can use that as income qualifying income on the, the application. Um, if they are receiving some payments from the other party before the divorce is settled, settled and finalized, we can still use that if we can prove that they've been receiving that income. And there are other assets that sometimes can be used as qualifying income. So for example, if um, the party that wants to stay in the property has reserves like a retirement account or a stock account or other liquid reserves, not, they don't even have to be liquid actually, they can be retirement accounts, we can actually annuitize those into a payment and use that payment for qualifying as well. So uh, it's important that, you know, that the person, that the party that's going to be staying in the house that needs to refinance is talking to a good mortgage broker that has the tools and understands how to get that done. Um, some cases we can do it right away, in other cases we have to wait a little while. One thing I consider when having a client reach out to a mortgage broker like Ed Atkinson is how realistic they're being about their options. Getting a divorce is very hard, it's very stressful, 
and then to think about relocating on top of it makes it even worse. So I totally get it why my clients don't want to do that. On the other hand, as a lawyer, it's not just my job to tell someone what the law is. It's my job to rein in their expectations to reality. So one of the reasons I say, as soon as you get off the phone with me, I want you to call a mortgage broker is because I want them to get the information so they can make intelligent choices. Yep, and that's exactly what uh, I see as my role or my job in this whole thing is to give them the good good bits of information. The good news about that is that I'm gonna be able to get it to them pretty quickly, usually within a day or so of talking with them and I'm be able to let them know, are they gonna qualif- be able to qualify for the refinance? What are the numbers for that gonna look like? If we can't get them qualified for the refinance or if the judge mandates that they sell the property, um, are they gonna be eligible to, to purchase another property um, after they sell that one. So maybe they're gonna be forced to downsize, maybe they'll have to move to a slightly different area to make the numbers work for the loan process. The good news about all that is if, if they talk to somebody like me at the very beginning, I'm gonna tell them exactly what um, their options are and I'm gonna tell, you exa- tell them exactly what the numbers look like and what the information is and that way they can at least make, um, at least they'll have a very good baseline and framework for like what you said, what's realistic and what isn't realistic moving forward. Yeah, I think the more information you have, the easier it is to start to figure out what this divorce is going to look like and start making informed decisions. And actually some of that anxiety that a person might have in divorce, getting information alleviates some of it because now instead of worrying, you can start planning. I think it's also somewhat powerful for that person too to have that information. Because, it, like you said, it is emotional, it's tough, it's uh, stressful. And ha- having some concrete info about what they can and cannot do, it, it empowers them to, to know what where they're going to be in this whole process. Um, Definitely. It gives them some authority, too, because it's quite powerful when you go into mediation, for example, or a hearing, and your client walks in with a pre-approval letter or hard data about what's going on and confidence, as opposed to just, ugh, I didn't wanna do my divorce homework, and so I don't really even know what's going on out there. I mean, who's everyone gonna listen to? The person who's prepared. And also, that takes me to another point, which is you need to have a backup plan. And by that, I mean, Ultimately, it is not your call whether you get to keep the house. There are only two ways to decide that issue. One is by agreement of both parties to the divorce. So if you agree, boom, pretty easy to figure out as long as it works out and there's not a damage to it. On the other hand, if you don't agree, probably a judge will tell you what is going to happen. And as I mentioned, the odds are very high. They will just say, you know what, you're breaking up, sell the house. The problem is, what if your mortgage payments are a thousand a month right now, and then if you sell the house, you've looked into it and even your rent will be higher than that for a comparable house. So what are some things that a person can do if they want to find out whether they will be able to buy a house if for some reason they have to sell the marital home? Yeah, so like I said, um, we're, we're, when we do that analysis initially, we're going to let them know what they qualify for if they purchase a home now. 
And if it doesn't work right now, we're going to tell you tell them what they could do to put themselves in a better position maybe six months or a year down the road. The other thing that's out there that a mortgage broker can help with is that it, 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 usually through a divorce uh, scenario, we're going to have a good idea of which party has what debt, right? If there's debts that are in, in um, the case, once they are at a certain point in that divorce proceeding, we're going to know which party is responsible for what which debts. And if the client that's wanting to stay in the house and refinance or is ordered to sell the house and then is looking at buying another property, if that party has debts, but there's equity in the property, then we may be able to use some of that equity to pay off those debts, which helps us with that debt ratio, which helps us to get them qualified. So yes, maybe they have to sell the property, maybe they have to buy another property, and maybe their their mortgage payment is going up with the the result of that transaction but if we can pay off some other debts in the in the process of doing that then it's not only giving that person a clean slate to start with but budget wise it may not be any different to them because we're paying off some consumer debt maybe their mortgage is going up and through that process they may may still be able to make that budget work I'm so glad you mentioned that because I that is a good thing to know to get creative when you are crafting a separation agreement or a settlement in a divorce is, wow, we can come up with some game plans here where you pay off a lot of the debt without selling the home because I think judges will immediately go to the idea, well, sell the home, pay off the debt off the top. And so that's how their mind is thinking. And so you end up in front of a judge and they see debt, their immediate reaction might be sell the house because I don't want anyone having this debt lingering and people being liable. But if you come in with a well-crafted plan, oh no, I'm pre-approved. I am going to refinance and pay off this portion of the debts and this other person might have an inheritance or savings or something that enables them to pay off the other portion, then why not let that person keep the house, especially when there might be a relocation, possibly even out of the region just because the real estate market's so tight here. So that's good to know. Mm -hmm. And then I always tell my clients, go look at a few houses anyway, because like I said, you need a backup plan. And also let's say you're just absolutely, I think I can stay in the house. I'm pre-approved, I'm the high breadwinner, I'm gonna refi. If you're going to hearing, the judge might still say, I don't really care about any of that. You have to sell the house anyway. I've seen it happen. I'm not gonna ever talk about a specific case in detail, but I have seen that happen. I've mentioned it multiple times that that could happen. If a party can say, well, I looked in my neighborhood, there's no listings in the kids' school district, that could be evidence why your plan to refinance a house is so important. Or in some cases, they may not qualify to purchase where they qualify to refinance. So in the situation where their mortgage payment would go up, so, uh, maybe there's nothing in their neighborhood or in their area that they want to live that's in their price point. You could go back to the judge and say, yeah, I could sell the house and buy another one, but my mortgage payment is going to double. So that's all the more reason for me to stay and refinance and stay in this home is because budget-wise, it makes a lot more sense for me to do that. 
Um, again, I can't comment on what the judge is going to say or what the legal implications of that are, but I can certainly help with that argument as a mortgage person because I can tell them exactly what the new mortgage payment is going to be and I can tell them exactly what it is if they stay in the house and refinance. Yeah, so that's we can a great give, point. We can, we can provide that raw data that may help them in negotiations. Um, I like that. And I've also had the idea of having a mortgage broker ready to testify as an expert witness. I think they're qualified to talk about lending approval and especially if they've already pre-approved and they're on be- speaking on behalf of a lender and say, you know what, this is the best option because right now the market is so tight in that region that they will not qualify to buy for a very long time. And one of the factors in Colorado anyway about when you sell the house is how does it affect the children or maybe someone who was in the home not working. Um, One of the laws on division of property says homemaker. And by that they mean, okay, maybe you weren't paying the mortgage. Maybe you weren't even working. But if you were a homemaker and you were contributing to the family in that role, then you're entitled to half the equity in the house. And also we may look at that when we decide how soon we will make you move. What I'm finding lately is they are more inclined not to let someone refinance because I think they just see these things going sideways sometimes where the person just can't make it work. Um, And so judges are pretty strict, but that doesn't preclude you from reaching an agreement where you can keep the house. And by all means, you want to have that figured out in advance because I want to make this clear. When you sell the house in divorce, then both of you split the cost of sale. But when you refinance the house because you're keeping it or you say, oh, I'm going to live in here two years, then sell, you shoulder all that cost by yourself. Some of my clients have said, that's not fair. I'm saving everyone a bundle of money by taking on the refi so the other party should pay half of the cost of closing. That's not what the judges order, so you have to be prepared to shoulder it. But you can use that as a bargaining chip to say, wow, I paid for the cost of closing. Do you know how much I saved you? Because that real estate broker is going to get a huge percentage, plus they will make us fix up this house. There's always repairs, there's staging, all these costs of closing and selling even in a great market. Usually they want some expense to go into the sale of the house. So you can point it out as a bargaining chip. And I think it's good to know it does kill me when a client's just like, I'm going to stay in this house no matter what. And I just will really argue with my own clients a lot and say, I can get you more money. I don't like this idea. Let's try something else. If it seems like it's in the realm of fairness and they know what they're getting into, I think they should have the autonomy to do it. But it has to be in the realm of fairness. I have even noticed courts can be strict and second guess that choice if the client changes his or her mind. So it has to be in the realm of fairness. But I really fight my clients to a degree if they want to take a bad deal just to stay in the house and especially if I think they won't be able to pull it off. Yeah. So it's good to know. I didn't realize that about the costs um, and how that worked through yeah. the court. So that's yeah. good for me to know. I had someone kind of point out but can't you argue it? I don't see it in the law. And it may not be literally in the statutes. I don't think it is. However, it is indirectly because once you take an asset, 
in a divorce, then you're responsible for the costs of whatever happens to that asset, and that would include a closing. Now, you can always agree otherwise, but it's very hard to get people to agree to take on half those costs. Yeah, Maybe I, that will change, but I, not so far, no. I can imagine. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can agree to anything within reason, but be realistic about it. It has to be fair. It has to be what they say is not unconscionable. Unconscionable, when I was a business law attorney and I did litigation for big corporations, unconscionable was so extreme that hardly anything was unconscionable. It had to be really severe because they said, listen, these are two business people on a handshake agreement. They had every right to counsel and to research. And so it is so severe that it just shocks the conscience or it's, it's very extreme financially. I'm finding in Colorado, um, judges kind of do what they want to do. I know in terms of maintenance, usually it's 10% off, or they might consider that unconscionable because there's a whole body of law about modifying maintenance, which is alimony. So it's been a little bit watered down, what's unconscionable. And they have this kind of protective parents patrie they might call it like where they're looking out for the family and so they might step in and say oh no 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 that's unconscionable so it's a little looser um in family law but i don't like my clients making sacrifices to keep that house and i'll tell you why i've never had a client come back oh we sold the house i can pay my bills i did shop around i found a cute little condo or a, a smaller house in a nearby community and I regret it but I have had clients come back to me I kept the house and I can't pay the mortgage or I fell behind I couldn't get the refi and they're just miserable or house poor so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that about um uh, if you've ever seen that where someone says they're going to keep the house and then they come to you after the divorce and it just doesn't work out. Yeah, I haven't had a, a ton of experience with that. I, you know, again, my goal when I'm counseling these people on, especially on a refinance, staying in the house, the last thing I want is for them to not be able to afford to make that mortgage payment. So I'm usually going to err on the side of being a little bit more conservative with regard to them. There may be a certain amount that I can get them approved for, so I may be able to get them approved for the refinance, barely, you know, with that debt ratio. But I'm always going to uh, counsel them and explain to them, you know, this is where you are if you're going to stay in this property and refinance. This is where I would like to see you as far as your debt ratio, what I think would be a lot more comfortable for you. So I'm not going to always, I'm not never going to tell them you should sell versus refinance. Right. If that's what they're set on, I think that's more your job as an attorney to help well, them down yeah, that I'll, path. I'll steer them. They get to make a choice, but I will tell them if it's misguided. Yeah. But I, you know, the that debt ratio that we have to abide by in order to get them approved gives us a pretty good framework of whether they're going to be able to afford to make that payment or not. And typically, I want that to be not at the maximum. I'd like it to be below the maximum because I want them to be comfortable um, you know, with that payment. I want them to succeed, and I want them to get through this transition in their life and sort of have a clean slate and, and have a great, the best opportunity you know, to be successful 
financially going forward. So. You don't want to just have them do something that they can't follow up on just yeah. to get the closing. Yeah, and and that's what I like about you is that you're ethical about things like that. So that I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise me. Um, the other concern is what if you have a couple, they get divorced, um, they decide one of the parents or one of the divorcing couple without children gets to keep the marital home and then they just can't get the refi. Have you ever seen that? I have, um, and it's unfortunate when that happens. So usually my strategy in that case is gonna be, is there something we can change? Is there something they can tweak? Is there something we can do with their debts or their income or something to get them to qualify? So first thing I'm gonna tell them is if they don't qualify today to do the refinance, is there something they can change to be able to do it six months down the road, for example? If uh, if they just don't refinance and I, the income isn't there, the debt ratio is not going to work, then I'm going to be honest with them and just say, uh, I, I can't get you approved to stay in the house and refinance. I don't know of any lender that would be able to get you approved. So we need to have, you need to have another plan in place. And, and the good news about that is it's not, may not be what they want to hear, but at least they know. Right. You know, at least they know at that point. It's reality and it, it, you have to live in reality. Yeah, you don't it, get... Uh, to switch the lender's requirements no. just because you don't like them. No, it's only up to a point and it's black and white and we cannot cross that line. So if they don't qualify, they don't qualify. And you know, the the alternative to that is they think they can refinance. They don't talk to a mortgage person. The divorce goes through and now they're under pressure because of the court order. That's to what yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, and they that, find oh. out and they find out six months later that they can't refinance. And that that creates all kinds of problems for them and for you as the attorney. Well, they'll even lie to me and say they talked to a mortgage broker yeah. and I know they were lying because later they'll say they didn't. Yeah. And so um, you know, they just want what they want so badly that, that sometimes it's tempting to believe what you want to believe. It's my number one issue three years running, which is why this is so important is, oh, I have to keep that marital home no matter what. It's the most important thing, but it's up to the lender. Yep. And um, so I'm glad I, you pointed that out. And then on the flip side, what are some things that a person can do to help them qualify for a mortgage? What are some changes maybe they can make in the terms of settlement or their own credit rating? Do you have any pointers on that? I do. So I'm not a credit repair expert by any means, um, but I've seen enough credit reports in my tenure that I know uh, I have a pretty good understanding of what they can tweak quickly. So if it's a credit score problem, then in many cases I can let them know you need to make these minor changes to get your credit score to where we need it to be. If you make these changes, we can get there in 30 or 60 days. So that's pretty straightforward as far as fixing the credit. If it's an income situation, then do they have the opportunity to go back to work? Do they want to go back to work? Um, how quickly can that happen? What kind of job do they think they, think they can get? Well, what do they think the income is going to be? So if we've got a debt ratio and an income problem, then I'm going to talk to them about their potential to earn income on their own separate from the divorce. And so. that's always a good idea if you can swing it. Um, I have a friend that her divorce attorney told her, oh, honey, you don't have to go get a job and, you know, then you'll get more maintenance. And I say the opposite because if you can control a portion of your income that will always be more comfortable for you than 
having to beg and go to court for the maintenance because it's very dependent on that other person who isn't necessarily your best friend in that economic scenario. And also, like you said, it can help them qualify. It also, I think, gets a party more maintenance, ironically, because the judge can say, wow, this person went out, they got the best job they can get, and this is their income. We have a fixed number, and it's true, as opposed to, wow, this person said they can't get a job. I find that that is not credible. You never want the judge to say you are not credible. That means I think you're lying and I don't believe what you have to say. And if your judge is making decisions based on whether they believe your words, then you just don't want them to ever say that about you. So don't go in and say, I can't get a job if that's not 100% true. Try to get a job if you possibly can. And unfortunately, sometimes people can't get a job and the judge just doesn't believe them in this economy. And then um, another thing is to maybe get temporary maintenance and it can count toward that six months. So I try to do that sometimes for my clients. Mm. Easier said than done, but there are a lot of creative things that people can do, especially if we can get them on the same page. So um, thanks for that. A quick um, similar question is, what if someone's self-employed or an entrepreneur, how do they qualify for a mortgage in divorce? What do they need to do? So it's more difficult if you're self-employed we are going to look very closely at your net income over the last 24 months if you're self-employed generally there are exceptions to that but in general we're going to be looking at your net income so not not your gross sales but your gross sales minus your expenses for that business um, and that's what we're going to be looking for is the net income sometimes they require us to to average that over 24 months sometimes over 12 months okay. so if it's a self-employed borrower the first thing i'm going to talk to them about is that income piece and I'm probably going to ask for some documentation from them. I'm going to want to see a tax return or something that gives me an idea of what their income has been from that self-employed business for the last two years. Yeah, and I want them to have a bookkeeper and good records. Like, by all means, they should have a profit-loss statement, a balance sheet. They should be drawing income. I don't want to see their personal and their business records all muddled together, although I do see that a lot. Um, Now, I own my own business, my law firm but I draw a W-2 income. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing my W-2 income would be considered my income for a mortgage. Is that correct? It's that and addition to any distributions that you take. So most people that are self-employed that pay themselves a salary also get a portion of the profits of the business. So they're getting two two streams of income. They're paying themselves uh, a paycheck through the business, and then they're also taking um, a portion of the profits, either monthly or quarterly or maybe once per year. So it's, we're able to use both of those incomes. So the okay. income that you're paying yourself monthly and then the income that you're taking from the distributions of the company. And that's what qualify. the judges usually do too. Like there is case law in Colorado that you don't get to just say, well, I'm a W-2 and my income's 40000 And then they look and you're taking owner distributions or distributions in kind. Mm-hmm. Like they will dig into your records and say, wow, you're paying for your car lease, you might be paying some of your mortgage, you might be doing things that seem a little bit of a stretch, but they will really dig in and look at that. Do lenders do the same thing? They do, so that's why we wanna see the tax returns. There are uh, situations where they're if they're paying some personal expenses through the business, we may be able to add that as income. 
they may be doing some paper deductions like depreciation and some of those other things can be added back to their income. So yes, absolutely, they we dissect the tax returns and we wanna see exactly what all the income is and all the expenses. And that's the only true way that we can determine exactly what that qualifying income is gonna be for, for a self-employed borrower. Yeah, I didn't know that a lender might dig in like that. And I think I might have made a point that isn't easy to follow. The reason judges look at those numbers is to calculate maintenance, alimony, and child support because that will be based on someone's income. So it's probably not a shocker that everyone wants to say they have a low income for purposes of paying child support and maintenance because they want to pay less or get more. Yep. And then, of course, for purposes of the refinance or to get a mortgage, they want to say they have a higher income, it's, even to get a lease or buy a car. So those are documents I like to get my hands on if someone says their income is very low to see them puffing themselves up and saying how big their income is. So you really need to balance both and and be accurate to it's it a, as much as possible. Yeah, it's absolutely a catch-22 for us because uh, if they're going through a divorce situation, they want their income to be as low as possible for the, the reasons that you just mentioned. They also want their income to be as low as possible for tax liability questions, right? The lower Same the, in, the yep. lower the income is, <laughs> yep. the lower tax you pay. The problem with that is the lower the income, the harder it is for me as a mortgage professional sure. to get them approved. So I, I don't ever give people any advice on how to file their taxes or how to run their, you know, how to expense their business sure. me neither. against their income. I always refer them to a CPA to do that, but I do let them know about that problem. Yeah, I'm very your, similar. Yeah. The lower your income but is, the harder it is At the end me. of the day, you have to be reasonable. And listen, judges do thousands of divorces. You're not going to walk in and pull the wool over their eyes with clever bookkeeping. They know darn well that people do that. They see people do it day in and day out, say their income's next to nothing for tax purposes and for any debt, and then say their income's higher for other reasons if they want to get a loan for the business. So I think you really, again, want to be in the realm of reasonable because mm -hmm. then you don't hear those words, I found the petitioner not credible. I found the respondent not credible about their income. Um, I found it not believable that they're in certain industries and they claim they're never paid in cash. They, This is not their first rodeo. They know about all different types of employment more than most of us and um, they'll see through it. So yeah, there's only so much you can do. Yep. So yeah, we covered all the big things for my number one issue, three years running, you did a great <laughs> job. So now it's time for my lawyer joke of the day. It's not really a lawyer joke, it's a divorce joke. Why is divorce like crushing Coca-Cola cans? Why? It's so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the sad truth. So. That's it my is. lawyer joke of the day. <laughs> but it's our job to not be, not have it be so depressing, hopefully. Yeah, there's only so much you can do. But like I said, it's just a transition. It's a rough one, but there is a whole future ahead of you. Yeah, it's a new beginning sometimes, too, you know. Yeah, there are two sides to that coin because now it's been normalized to the degree that you don't stand out if you had a divorce that shocks the whole community. Oh my gosh, a broken home, it's so shocking. It's more common 
so you don't have that same stigma that's positive and also I asked my father one time what happened back in the day when no one divorced if there was alcoholism physical abuse and he said they just stayed married sometimes and it was pretty bad yeah so yeah, sure I think yeah I think human nature might stay the same whether people divorce or not they're going to find ways to work through some of the tough issues and I bet even back then people maybe lived in different houses or did something I I don't know but um it is depressing sometimes for sure and and that's part of the process but I do think having information is the best cure it really is yeah and I I the last word that I would like to say is you're absolutely doing it right in the sense that you're recommending that your clients talk to a mortgage professional at the very beginning of the process. It's, there's absolutely no downside to that. Okay, because, good. <laughs> you know, because they're, they're going to get the information that they need. They're going to be empowered with that information. They're going to be more credible in the eyes of the court, right? So all for all of those reasons, it, there's absolutely no downside to talking to a mortgage yeah, professional. Yeah, it's just information. It's not yeah. locking you into it. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah, it's almost like they don't want to hear it so they just don't do it so now we have our question of the day for next time the next time i do a podcast now it's something of a guess because i never know for sure who the next podcast will be but i do have an idea of who i think it might be and so i'm asking a question of the day that i think will translate into the question of the day next time i know our question of the day, we did predict it when I was talking to Dee Dee Jones, a financial advisor, and she had some good ideas about how a financial advisor can help you with refinancing the house and getting everything in order. Mm-hmm. So this question of the day is, what are some of the most important things for parents of children of the marriage to consider in divorce? So do you have any thoughts on that? It's not really a mortgage broker question, but... Yeah, I think there's definitely some of what we've already talked about. Like, do they? Do, is it best for them to stay in the same house? Is it best for them to same stay in the same school or or stay in the same school district or the same neighborhood, same friends? Um, is there something you can do to make it more stable and easier for them through the process? I mean, you know way more about that side of things than I do, but yeah, get the I, information I, even if it's a different house in the school district. Yeah, but I will say. Like I mentioned, it may be better to relocate to a different location where you can afford your home, as hard as that is, than to just unrealistically saddle yourself with a situation you can't afford. That does not help your kids. And don't speculate about, oh, so-and-so will co-sign my dad, my stepdad, my business partner. You better make sure, and you better get it in writing. And also don't speculate about roommates, because I can't tell you how many times people said, well, I'm going to get a roommate, and then it doesn't always work out. And even when it does, can you believe often the ex is sitting there with binoculars spying on the roommate to make sure you add it to your income for purposes of calculating child support and maintenance? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, (sighs) I do get a a lot of the clients that you refer to me that are going through this process, they do mention their children. I mean, it's a big part of the process. and. Uh, you know, of course, we're going to do everything we can to help them. But I, I, I think having that stable, as stable as possible through the transition is always going to be best for the children, whether that's moving, downsizing, or staying in the house. Yeah, and yeah they do do and, well with stability. And then 
I always emphasize keep them out of the middle. This is grown-up business. They don't need to hear about it. Even in their early 20s or perhaps all of their 20s, mm-hmm. don't put them in the middle. Yeah. They just deserve to have their own life this and stay out of the drama. So that's one of the things we'll probably talk about. It helps too. Like when I, a lot of times when I give the clients the information, like here, here's what you can, cannot do, you can hear them on the other end of the line. They're, they're now able to start strategizing. Okay, oh, well, nice. I, okay, I, I've got that information now. Cool. Now I can start thinking about how I'm going to make this work, right? Oh, I like um, that. I didn't know that. So they are starting to recalibrate their thinking from yeah. worry, worry, worry to start planning. Yeah. Yeah, I'll even say sometimes to clients because the other party might do something that is a bit shady, a bit hurtful, and I'll say, don't get mad, get prepared. I agree. <laughs> get totally the information. agree with that. Yeah. yeah totally. So... As we close it out, um, if you want to repeat your contact information and anything you have coming up, I know you have a newsletter. Yep. Um, thanks very much. So, yes, I, again, Ed Atkinson with Golden Lenders. And uh, website is goldenlenders.net. You can find me there. Uh, my email address is ed at goldenlenders.net. Uh, my uh, contact phone number is 303-810-6451. Yes, I do have a mailing digital newsletter. Um, also going to be having some updates on social media and uh, updates to our website coming up pretty soon. So um, we, we think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I always get your newsletter. I look at it and um, I like your video or whatever you have. And, and for me, I have these podcasts. I do videos usually every month or so. We have our website, which is chock full of information, so much information. And then we send out a newsletter and we put those blogs right on our website. And that's all free content. And we give everybody a free consult. So my cell phone is 303-808-4794. You can call or text me right now. I'll get back to you as soon as you can with a free consult to get you in the right direction. Because as I mentioned, families change form, whether it's divorce, death, or just a breakup. Um, You're not just breaking up, you're breaking upward. Thank you so much.